0: Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church, Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another, and impacting the world. Well, friends, I greet you all in the wonderful name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, you can turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians. I guess it's increasingly well known to us. We've been working through it over the last couple of months, and we will still be looking at it for a number of months to come. We find ourselves in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. As you turn there, let me tell you, when I went into ministry, um, (laughs) I, I preached through the book of 2 John over a number of months. Second John just has, I think, 21, maybe 22 verses in it. Um, and I preached maybe two verses at a time for up to one and a half hours at a time. Now, this was 15 years ago. Um, as I looked at this passage, it's 18 verses. It's a whole chapter of God's Word. I was like, how on earth can you possibly do this all in one sitting I listened to Pastor Charles preach through it this morning at the Hill. Uh, He certainly got through it well, and so I'm looking forward to us here at Arcadia, looking at a whole chapter of God's Word this morning. I trust you found it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning at the first verse and going through to the 18th verse, hear the Word of God. Therefore having this ministry by the mercy of God we do not lose heart but we have renounced disgraceful or underhanded ways we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word but by the open statement of the truth we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God and even if For God who said let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, so also believe, we, and so also we also speak, knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake. So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. are eternal. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we have read your word and now we ask even as it is taught, may it be taught with clarity. Lord God, might it be received with willing and open hearts. Do you renew our minds? Do you stir the affections of our heart? Do you change our lives that we might be conformed increasingly towards the image of Jesus. Do this for individuals, Lord God. Do this for us as a body locally manifested here at Central. Do this for your church that your great name might be praised. In the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, amen. Friends, if you're a note taker, let me tell you right at the outset what the argument I'm going to make this morning is your faith in your suffering points your world to your savior. Let me repeat that for those of you need a little bit of extra time to write. Your faith in your suffering points your world to your savior. And I'm going to make that argument as we work through the text, uh, verse by verse, in four major points. The first point is from verse 1 to 6, and it's this, we proclaim the light of Christ. The second point I'm going to make is from verse 7 to verse 12, and it's this, we proclaim the life of Christ. The first point is light. The second point is life. The third point is resurrection. And it's in verse 13 to 15. We proclaim the resurrection of Christ. And then, lastly, from verse 16 to verse 18, we proclaim the eternal glory of Christ. That's the outline. Let's work through the first few verses. We, under the, the main heading, we proclaim the light of Christ. Read verse one and two together with me. Therefore, obviously we need to ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? Having this ministry, having this service, by the mercy of God, We do not lose heart. That's an important phrase. It's repeated at the end of this chapter again. But in verse 2, we have renounced disgraceful or underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to you, to everyone's conscience before God or in the sight of God. The opening word, therefore, really connects us to what came before. From verse, from chapter 3, verse 7, through to verse 18, last week, we discussed that we as ministers, as servants of the new covenant are to point our world to Jesus Christ. We are ministers of the new covenant. Yeah, Paul now says as, as ministers of the new covenant, we do not lose heart. Uh, this idea of not losing heart is fueled because we have this ministry of the new covenant given to us by the mercy of God. Mercy means that God withholds from us what we do deserve, and in this case, he gives us something that we do not deserve, a ministry, a service before him, and a service to others. Now, in contrast to Paul having this Ministry of the new covenant, which he has received by the mercy of God, they are those who are undermining Paul's ministry in the city of Corinth. He says, We, pointing to himself, but setting himself aside from those who do this, we do not use disgraceful or underhanded ways, cunning, or tamper with God's word. We are not false. Messengers. Later on in this same book, Paul goes on to describe in chapter 11, verse 13, what these false messengers look like. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Friends, not every billboard that says prophet and uh, first lady or apostle so-and-so is a person who represents the new covenant of Jesus Christ. Not every person who claims to minister the new covenant is a faithful messenger of the new covenant. Now Paul says in this text that we who faithfully minister the new covenant, we do not tamper with God's word. God's word is like a line. We, we dare not go above it, add to it, legalism. We dare not go below it, subtract from it, licentiousness. No, rather, we who faithfully minister the new covenant make open statement of the truth. You can see, what you see is what you get. Our proclamation, our lifestyle can be tested against God's word. You could say, as we look at verse 1 and 2, that Paul is saying that as we go about proclaiming this light of Christ, we do so faithfully. His second subpoint here is, as we go about proclaiming the light of Christ, we do so clearly. Verse three, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This idea of veiled to those who are perishing, that word perishing jumps out of the text. It reminds us of passages of scripture we know so well. John chapter 3 verse 16. For for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in, in him should not perish but have eternal life. If salvation is restoration of relationship with God, perishing is eternal continuity of severance from God. If salvation is to experience eternal blessings from God, perishing is to experience eternal wrath from God. If salvation is to experience heaven's glory, to perish is to experience hell's fire. If salvation is joy unspeakable, To perish is to experience terror unending. If salvation is eternal bliss, perishing is eternal suffering. To perish is a furious thing. To perish is an awesome thing. To perish is a terrifying thing. Who would do such a thing? Who would stand opposed to the free offer of salvation? The God of this world. Satan, the devil, the accuser, the slanderer, Levithan, the snake, the serpent, the dragon, Beelzebub, the tempter, the wicked one the prince of the power of air, the ruler of this world, the adversary. And he has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Satan causes the lost to be inattentive. Satan causes the lost to be ill-willed towards the preaching of the gospel. Satan causes the lost to be ignorant so that they cannot grasp what is being said And he may do this by causing them to gaze upon the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, rather than on Christ. Now, what does this mean? This is very important. What does this mean for the unsaved? Can your son or daughter who is presently living outside of the faith be saved? Can you who is sitting here this morning be saved? Or are you unsavable beyond redemption irrecoverable Is my task as a gospel preacher impossible because Satan stands opposed to everything that I do? Well, it would be except for this powerful truth. Read verse five and verse six together with me. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Christ Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Friends. In light of Satan's schemes, God's ministers rely on these two following truths. Number one, the gospel is salvation to everyone who believes. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Preach Christ, ministers of the new covenant. And then, secondly, even as we preach Christ, there's a second truth in this text which is amazing to behold. We trust God. Salvation is a work of His omnipotent power. Omnipotent means power. God is. Powerful. Salvation is a work of spiritual revival. Salvation is a work of glorious insight. Jonah in the belly of the whale acknowledged salvation belongs to the Lord. And in this passage, Paul says, in light of Satan doing all that Satan can do in order to confound you, in order to blind you, God is powerful to save you. He does it in this way. He appeals to Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, God said, let there be light. Our all-powerful, all-mighty, creative, intentional, intelligent, designer of the heavens and the earth who made everything that we see that has come to be who created all things he is powerful to speak into the heart of man and call men out of darkness shine his light in their hearts that they might see jesus and live friends when i preach the gospel and in a little while i will I don't trust, in my words, to persuade or to convince you to see Jesus Christ and believe. For I am feeble and frail and altogether too weak for that awesome task. But I trust God, who is all-powerful and almighty, to bring you to faith. God can save you, even now, even this day. And so we proclaim the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. We proclaim the light of Jesus in this world as servants of the new covenant. Secondly, we proclaim the life of Jesus. And we read that in verse 7. That's where we start. Verse 7. But we have this... This treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This treasure, what treasure? The gospel, (laughs) salvation, Jesus. In, In Matthew's gospel, Matthew records the words of Jesus Christ, the parables, chapter 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up and then in joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field and the next verse again the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it the the gospel Salvation. Jesus is a pool of great price. He is a treasure of great reward. Where would you hide your treasure? Well, I could tell you where my treasure is hidden. <laughs> Actually, I don't have treasure. We, we sold our safe at home. <laughs> but, but if you did have treasure, let's say you had, I don't know, ends and you needed to store them somewhere. Well, they would be in your cupboard, right? And in your cupboard, there would be a safe. And the only person that would have knowledge of that safe would be you. You would store it in a secure location. Or maybe you would store it in a grand location. You would take your treasure and you would turn it into something amazing. But you would have it so that it might be displayed to the world. I'm thinking of something like the Taj Mahal or something beautiful that represents the treasure of man. God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Who owns everything. The cattle on a thousand hills. God whose greatest treasure is his own son. Puts him in jars of clay. You know what jars of clay are? It's me. Frail. Feeble. Finite. Mark. And it's you, believer. God has placed his greatest treasure within you. It is an amazing thing. But it's not about you, it's about him. He places his treasure within you, not to show how awesome you are to the world because you're just a clay pot. He places his treasure in you in order to demonstrate his surpassing power because whilst you are weak, he is strong. And so he places in you his treasure. This is an idea that is well made throughout all of Scripture. Later on in this same book in chapter 12, Paul will say, or Jesus will say through Paul, My power is made perfect in your weakness, right? Moses, when he was called by God, cried out to the Lord and, and said basically in Exodus chapter four, 4, I'm not the guy that you are looking for. I'm I'm weak, I'm frail, I'm feeble. What did God say? That's okay, I'm going with you and I am enough. The psalmist in Psalm 73 cried out, my flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I'm weak, I'm feeble, I'm frail, but Jesus, God is enough. And of course, the greatest example is Jesus Christ himself who was crucified in weakness but lives by the power of God. Friends, this idea of weakness and God being strong flies against what most of the church is teaching today. It flies against the prosperity rubbish, which is on all of the TV channels that claim to be Christian and all of the large churches that claim to represent Christ. The prosperity gospel is not a gospel that saves. It's a gospel which condemns. It's Satan giving to man exactly what man wants, not God giving to man what man needs. The point here is that God leaves no room for his glory to be shared with another. And so he puts his treasure in clay pots like you and I. Verse eight, but we are afflicted in every way but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Paul understood affliction. In chapter 11, later on in this book, Paul will say that with far greater labors, far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times he received the, the hands of the Jews, the 40 lashes less one. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. A night and a day he was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from our own people, dangers from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil, in hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure of me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Paul says of himself. Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Paul's point is he has faced such affliction for the sake of the cross. He has faced such hardship as all of God's ministers do. The afflictions of life have come thick and fast to Paul. And yet, precisely because Paul is weak and God is strong, Paul has not been crushed. He has not been driven to despair. He has not forsaken. And he has not been destroyed. And the question that we ask is, in the midst of so much affliction, what keeps this minister pressing on? In weakness, In affliction, what causes him to put one foot in front of another? And we arrive at verse 10. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal body. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Paul says that he carries in his body the death of Jesus. Paul is no different to most of the church throughout every age. How fragile the church persecuted is. How close does the church persecuted exist on the very edge of death? How frequently haven't God's people been targeted for death? How often haven't they borne in their own bodies the marks of death? Why would they do it? What would keep them pressing on in the midst of affliction, in the midst of their weakness? Two ideas from our text. The first is in verse 11. For Jesus' sake. For Jesus' sake. Paul loves something more than he loves his life. Paul loves something more than he loves his safety. Paul loves something. No. Paul loves someone more than he loves anything in this world and it is the person of Jesus Christ, his Lord and his Savior. And then, Paul loves you. He says at the end of verse 12, but life in you. The minister of God's word presses on in the midst of affliction, in the midst of weakness, for the sake of the people that he is ministering to and the sake of the Savior that he loves. Third point, verse 13. We've already spoken about that we preach the light of Jesus. We preach the light uh, of Jesus and the life of Jesus. The third point is that we preach the resurrection of Jesus in verse 13. And friends, this resurrection is preached triumphantly. Verse 13 reads, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. You'll notice that that is in inverted commas. We also believe and so we also speak. What's going on here? Well, again, this is a citation. It's pointing us backwards. And in this case, it's pointing us to Psalm 116 verse 10. If you go to Psalm 116 verse 10, you, you, you read these words. I believed and so I spoke. But why? Why, why, would, why would Paul use this? Yeah. Well, the Passover meal always ended with the singing of the last part of what was called the halal. And it comes from Psalm 113 through to Psalm 118. These would be read line by line by the the father of the household. He'd read a line, and then I guess the equivalent today would be hallelujah. The whole family would say hallelujah, and you would read through each of these psalms. Is the acting head of the household on the night in which he was betrayed, as Jesus partook of the Passover, Jesus would have sung one line of these psalms after the other as the disciples responded by singing the word hallelujah. We read about this in Matthew chapter 26 verse 30 and Mark chapter 14 verse 26 where it says, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. If you go and read Psalm 116, and I would commend it to you to go and read either after lunch with your family, um, maybe read a line and get them to say hallelujah after it, because now everyone's keyed in on how that works, um, or read it this afternoon. If you go and read Psalm 116, you will find out that this is a psalm where the psalmist is crying out to God in the midst of affliction, which gives a great weight as we think of those moments just before Jesus Christ was arrested and crucified. But in the midst of this psalm, in the midst of this deep affliction that the psalmist is feeling, he says these words, I believed and so I spoke. The psalmist is saying, I trust in God, my affliction is great, but my hope is in the Lord. This is a song of prophetic triumph over death. A psalm which clearly has fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, as the faith of the psalmist. As the faith of Jesus Christ, so the faith of Paul and so the faith of all we who believe. In the midst of affliction, we declare, I believed and so I spoke. My faith and my trust is in God alone. And so friends, we proclaim the the resurrection of Jesus Christ who died for our sins triumphantly. Even as Jesus himself Proclaim triumphantly. Verse 14. We do this hopefully as well. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. And bring us with you into his presence. He who raised Jesus Christ. Again. This comes back to God. The question is who raised Jesus from the dead? Galatians chapter 1 verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Do you see? God the Father raised Jesus, but not God alone. Romans chapter 8 verse 11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit which dwells in you. The Holy Spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead. But not Him alone. John chapter 2, verse 19 Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. Friends, God raised Jesus. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It was a sovereign act of God. And so in the midst of affliction, In the midst of difficulty, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of all that is going on around Paul, Paul looks to God and he says, I know who raised Jesus from the dead. And if God can raise Jesus from the dead, God can raise me from the dead. Triumphantly proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. Hopefully proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. Thankfully proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 15, for it is all for your sake so that this grace extends to more and more people that it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. This passage is all about God. It is all about his glory and embedded in the middle of it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, unbeliever sitting here today. You can be saved, but not because you are strong. You can be saved when you recognize your weakness and turn to the cross of Christ and put your faith and your trust in his finished work. Jesus died for your sins and God raised him from the dead that you might have confidence, that you might have confidence that salvation is on offer to you today. The call on you as you see Jesus Christ and him crucified for your sin is to cast yourself upon him. Turn from your sin and put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ and you will live. It is a grace. It is something given to you that you do not deserve. And it comes from God and it is offered to you today. Last point, verse 16 and following. We've already said we proclaim um, the life of Jesus, we proclaim the light of Jesus, we proclaim the resurrection of Jesus, and now the last point in verse 16, we proclaim the eternal glory of Jesus. It says in verse 16, we do not lose heart. Remember, he started off by saying we do not lose heart, now he's going to end off by saying we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Friends, we present Jesus Christ to the world confidently. Confidently. We do not lose heart as we present the only hope that men and women have. This idea of our outer self being wasting away refers to physical deterioration. Paul bears in his bodies the marks of following his Lord Jesus Christ. He is physically marked. He is hurt. He is pained. And he has been afflicted. And the Corinthians, those that are against him in any event, might have pointed to that and said, well, look at Paul. Does that look like an apostle to you? I mean, it doesn't look like a 21st century apostle, right? They all wear fancy white suits and silk scarves and have $100 haircuts. There's Paul wasting away. And yet Paul says, yes, this is true. Physically and on the outside, I'm wasting away. But spiritually on the inside, my inner self is being renewed day by day. There is a spiritual rejuvenation which is happening within me. I'm being prepared for heaven's glories to come. Why do I say that? Because that's what Paul says in verse 17 to 18. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory Beyond comparison, as we look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This idea of an eternal weight of glory. Measured in time, one commentator said, present suffering becomes increasingly insignificant. What does that mean? We often think of the year and now. And the pain that we're going through. And what we're having to bear. And it feels as if our world is coming to an end. But when you stretch time out from the beginning to the end and then to the eternal, we look for an eternal weight of glory. And measured against that time, our present suffering becomes insignificant by comparison. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and now is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against him, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Bottom line is, even Jesus, as he suffered, looked forward to what was to come. Last note, and then a brief application to believers in the room. Friends, look at this text and look at it carefully. Suffering here is preparation. It says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing. Suffering to Paul was not meaningless. Suffering to Paul served a purpose. He says in Romans, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that sufferings produce endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Paul understood that suffering wasn't for suffering's sake in this world. That we Who suffer are being prepared for something that is to come. An eternal weight of glory. And so how would I bring this together and apply it to the hearts of believers here today? Friends, in his faith. In his sufferings. Paul understood That he had an opportunity to point his world to his savior. That's not so unlike you this morning. I have no doubt that you either have come through a time of suffering. Or presently going through suffering. Or soon will go through suffering. Because that's the way of a fallen world. But your suffering is not for nothing. Nothing. It is preparation. And even in the midst of your affliction, your faith in the midst of suffering has the potential of pointing your world, your family, your friends, your co-workers to your Savior, Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. And so in the midst even of affliction, proclaim the light of Jesus Proclaim the life of Jesus. Proclaim the resurrection of Jesus and proclaim the eternal glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Let's close in a word of prayer. Oh, Father, it's uh, never easy to say to people you love that they need to prepare for a time of suffering. But that's indeed what Paul experienced and the legacy that he, li- that he leaves to us even this morning. That we who are godly will surely go through times of trial and tribulation. This can be expected. And yet, Lord, in the midst of affliction, our faith might be on display That the people that we love, the people that we come into contact, might hear of the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, who is Lord and Savior. Might we be quick to proclaim his light, his life, his resurrection, and his eternal glory in the midst of a darkened world, that you might receive much praise. This I ask in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.